0: Now it's our privilege to worship God through the proclamation of His Word, so I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at a passage this morning that will focus our attention, hopefully, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 15 through 20 in this great and powerful letter that was uh, given to these people who were struggling with Heresy within their congregation. When the Lord Jesus Christ was well into his earthly ministry, he came to a point when he asked his disciples a very critical question. Before he asked them that question, though, he set them up with another question. He said to them, Who do people say that I am? They answered and said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. In other words, the world has lots of different answers to this question, but none of them are right. And then he gets right down to it, and he asks them the question that confronts every single person on the planet, but who do you say that I am? And since that day that he first confronted his disciples, That same question has echoed down through the centuries and has radiated across geographic, cultural, social barriers right down to our time here and now. As we know, Peter gave the correct answer. Peter said in response to that question of who do you say that I am, Matthew's account says, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, most everyone out there in the world, most flesh and blood, has an opinion about who Jesus Christ is. But the answer must come from God himself. One well-known... song way back in the 70s part of a rock opera called Jesus Christ Superstar tried to answer this question the uh probably what became the uh, kind of the theme song of that rock opera said this Jesus Christ Jesus Christ who are you what have you sacrificed Jesus Christ superstar do you think you're what they say you are and later on in the opera, the character played uh, the character of Mary Magdalene sings a song to Jesus while he's sleeping, and it strongly implies a romantic relationship between the two. The song as you remember was made popular by pop singer Helen Reddy. Right? It became wildly popular, hit the charts all over the world. And in that song, the lyrics say, "I don't know how to love him, what to do, how to move him," and then he's a man. He's just a man. He's a man. He's just a man. And once again, the world gets it wrong. We're in that season of the year that as we approach Passover season here in a few weeks, Easter season, and where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're going to be seeing, and I think some of them are already coming out now, the, the specials, the movies, the, the, uh, the History Channel or the A&E productions that are going to try to tell us who Jesus Christ really was. Sometimes they have things in their title like The Secret Code of or the lost story of the real resurrection of the real Jesus Christ, right? You're going to hear them. They're come, they come out every year. Kind of strange that if it's the newly discovered truth that all of a sudden they come out every year, right? After 2,000 years of having God's Word right here in, with us. But that's the way it is out there in the world. That's the way it is when you get your answers to that question from flesh and blood. If I need an answer to that question, Jesus asked His disciples that day, and we all need to answer that question. We're going to answer it one way or another. We need to go to the place that actually has the answer. God revealed the answer to Peter that day, and God has revealed the answer in His Word. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Colossians chapter 1, the answer to that question. Before we do, let's commit our time to our Lord and ask His blessing on our study. Father, we know that we are totally dependent on you for the answer to that question of who Jesus Christ is. Uh, we cannot go to the world. We cannot go to even much of the religious world. And even in the own, our big tent circles of evangelicalism, sometimes they even get it wrong. We know, Father, that we can trust your Word to reveal to us who your Son truly is. And so we ask your blessing on our study this morning, Father. I ask that you would overcome every weakness of the one speaking, for there are many, and simply minister your Word to every heart here and accomplish it, Father, for our joy, your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Again, this is a very interesting chapter in uh, Colossians, this passage. 15 through 20, and it's unique in in several ways. One of the ways it's unique is it's been noticed for a long time by scholars that this is in the form of a hymn, a two-stanza hymn about the person of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's just simply a hymn about Jesus by the Apostle Paul. It's, uh, uh, It's in two stanzas, Uh, like many songs or hymns are in separate stanzas, but they are also connected by a transition statement in verses 17 and 18a. Like uh, songs often are, there's a cor- there's a, a, a stanza, and then there's a bridge that connects the two. And this is the very thing that this little transition statement does. It reaches back to the first stanza, and it reaches forward to the first stanza. And so it forms a very interesting transition between these two stanzas. So what we're going to look at this morning is this hymn about Jesus in this letter by the Apostle Paul. These six verses are very distinctive also by what is not here. In the first 14 verses of this letter, uh, Paul uses the plural personal pronoun, you or we, 15 times, but not at all in these six verses. He picks it up again, though, in verse 21, if you look in your text, where he then makes an application of this hymn to the Colossian Christians where he says, and you who were once alienated. So in those six verses, he doesn't address anybody but Christ. And again, in the first 14 verses, he references various people eight times. He identifies himself as the author of the letter. He mentions Timothy, the saints, Epaphras, who was with him there in Rome as he wrote this from prison. Epaphras was probably the one that planted the church at Colossae, and he mentions the brothers. But in these these, uh, verses 15 through 20, his focus is on the person and work of Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church. So in these six verses, the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants to present the Lord Jesus Christ for who he truly is, in part to counter the false teaching, the heresies that were common at that time with the Colossian Christians, but also for all time for all eternity, to answer that question with the right answer, an answer that comes from God. So let's look at this first stanza. The first stanza, he is Lord of creation. Absolutely critical doctrine to understand. The entire Bible is predicated on the fact of creation. All true doctrine, all true, sound, orthodox, biblical doctrine, no matter what doctrine you can uh, think of, is built on the foundation of the creation story in the Old Testament. And Paul says, first thing in verse 15a, he is the image of the invisible God. The The image of the invisible God. He is fully God. Part of the Colossian heresy that was that the deity of Jesus Christ was being denied. All kinds of heresies popped up uh, during the first two or three centuries of the church. Some of them denied the humanity of Christ, some of them denied the deity of Christ, some of them denied the way that those two things uh, uh, were together in one person, and uh, the Colossians apparently had been uh, traumatized by false teachers coming in teaching that Jesus Christ was not fully God. But Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. He uses this Greek word, icon, icon. He is the image of the invisible God. He had said previously to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, and he uses the same word, um, and he's describing what unbelievers could not see because they had been blinded by Satan in their unbelief. He says that even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image, icon, of God. Notice how Paul, in that verse, he links the glory of Christ with the image of God. Two verses later in that same passage, he references not only the glory of God revealed in Christ, but also creation as he does in this very passage. He says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, <clears throat> has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is the invisible God. He is the God who is self-revealing. You can't know Him unless He chooses to reveal Himself To You you cannot reason your way to to God. Men have been trying that for centuries, and they can't do it. Smart men, intelligent men, educated men, but they just can't reason their way to God because He's the self-revealing God. In 1 Corinthians 2.14, the Apostle Paul says this, "...the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him." And here's the real key to it. "...neither can he know them." for they are spiritually discerned." That is a statement of ability or inability. The natural man, the unregenerate man, the unsaved man cannot know the spiritual things because they're revealed by God spiritually, and he is spiritually dead, spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, spiritually dead as a post. Again, Acts 4, 11 and 12, this is Luke's record of Peter preaching to Jews who had rejected their Messiah. Peter says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That little verb there, must, very important. That's a word that speaks of logical necessity. Logical necessity. So Peter, like Paul, he's just using not just theology in his arguments. He's using logic as well. Paul does that just marvelously, as we're going to see. One commentator says it this way, "...to say that Christ is the image of God is to say that in Him the nature and being of God have been perfectly revealed, that in Him the invisible has become visible." The Apostle John says in the first chapter of his gospel account, which we read, Um, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And he uses a word there that we get the word exegesis from, speaking of how we handle the text, to draw out of the text, to reveal what the text says. Christ is the exegesis, the the, uh, explanation of God, who He truly is. Later on in John's Gospel again, in 14.9, Jesus said, whoever has seen Me, Has seen the Father. So Jesus Christ is the full and complete image or icon or representation or reality of God because he is fully God. He also says in this same verse, he is preeminent over creation. Preeminent over creation. He says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The idea of the firstborn is the one who has preeminence. And it can have kind of a dual meaning. It's usually, as it sounds, the first person, the first son born in a family. But in Psalm 89, which is an exposition of the Davidic covenant, the psalmist says this in verse 27, and this is God speaking through him. He says, and I will make him the firstborn, and he uses the very same word here in the Greek Septuagint that is used here in the Greek text, prototokos. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. This is a reference to David, king of Israel, and ultimately to the one who would sit on the Davidic throne. We know that David was king, but then he died, and a succession of kings all died. But there is coming a king who will sit on the Davidic throne who will never die, and he will sit on that throne, and rule eternally. And remember, David was not the firstborn of his uh, siblings. Remember the story, how they had to sort their way down through to David, and uh, all of a sudden there he is? Well, the key to understanding it is the key to what God says. I will make him the firstborn, the preeminent one, the highest of the kings of the earth. One commentator says this, In the Greco-Roman context, in other words, the Greco-Roman culture and world of the first century, firstborn is also used as a legal term to refer to one who is the legal heir of his father's inheritance. So Jesus is the firstborn, the preeminent one, the one who will be and is the highest of all the kings of the earth. And verse 16 tells us why. Verse 16 says, for by him... All things were created. Don't miss these little words in Scripture, little preposition like for, these words that speak about means or cause or result and so on. Very important. That's a causal word there. Why? He is the image of God, the invisible one, firstborn of all creation, because by Him all things were created. Very simple reason that Jesus is preeminent over all of creation. Easy peasy, Right? He created it all. This statement just absolutely, by the way, obliterates any false teaching concerning the idea that Jesus was a created being, like with the Watchtower Society, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses. They say that Jesus was a one of the part of creation. Well, logically and theologically, Paul just, just decimates that concept by this simple statement. He created it all. In heaven and on earth. Part of the Colossian heresy probably was that, uh, well, okay, if God is a sovereign God over all of uh, creation, the material world, what about the immaterial world? What about the unseen realm of of angelic beings and demons and that type of thing? Well, Paul just gathers all of that up and puts it under the hegemony of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ when he says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. One of the great Bible expositors and and, uh, theologians a couple of generations ago said, Brother Dave mentioned him this morning, Dr. Alvin McLean, in his classic book, The Greatness of the Kingdom. That's a, I also recommend that book. He points out that you need three things to have a kingdom. It's going to be a real kingdom, you have to have three things. And uh, he calls it uh, the ruler, okay? You have to have a ruler of the kingdom, and uh, you also have to have a ruler that has the right to rule. You can have all kinds of phonies and fakes come along, but unless they have the right to rule, they're not a legitimate ruler. And that ruler, who has a legitimate right to rule, has to rule over a realm, okay? That's an easy way to remember it. Got to have a ruler, he has to have the right to rule, and he has to have a realm to rule over. Dr. McLean takes you right back to the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, there's a ruler, created, there's a right to rule. You make it, you own it, right? Pretty easy, you make it, you own it. What's the realm? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a little figure of speech in uh, Scripture. It's in the Old and New Testament called Amerism, where, where the writer looks at the extremities of something, um, and uh, he doesn't mean to just talk about those two bookends, but he wants to include everything. Jesus identified himself as the Alpha and the Omega, and he uses the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's that, but he's everything in between. It's simply a way of saying he created all that was created. Don't miss what Paul is saying here. Jesus Christ is the absolute sovereign Lord over all that is because he made all that is. And Paul's not the only New Testament writer to to teach this. Um, Dave read through it. I want to repeat the first verse of John's gospel. In the beginning, was the Word. Now, John's a Jewish believer. He's writing to Jewish people. So, the minute he says, in the beginning, they would have immediately thought of the first verse in their Bible, the uh, Pentateuch, right? First verse of the Bible. It's back to creation. "...in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made." That is a statement of the eternality of the one who created all things. He had to pre-exist everything because he made everything. And to counter the false teachers, again, who would denying his power over the spirit world, he just gathers everything up, visible and invisible. This covers all the false gods and all false spirits, anything out there that you can't see. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or, or authorities. Jesus Christ created all things. And then at the end of 16, 16b, all things were created through him. And this is the part I really like. This is fascinating. And for him. He created it all for himself. He's the heir of all creation. Okay? He created it all. He's fully God. He's preeminent over creation. He created it all. And he created it all for himself. For him. One day, he's going to come back, and he's going to come back physically, and he's coming back to this earth, and he's going to set right what was lost. You ladies, please forgive my football analogy, okay? Adam, the first Adam, he fumbled the football, okay? Jesus is going to take it to the house and he's going to do it over creation. This planet is just not going to sort of spin off into eternity and disappear someplace with all of the evil going on and all of the the corruption and perversion and sin. No, he's coming back. He's coming back here, and he's going to set things right. New Testament scholar and commentator F.F. Bruce, one of the premier New Testament scholars in the late 20th century, he says this, "...for those who have been redeemed by Christ..." The universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. Probably with special reference to the Colossian heresy, it is now emphasized that if all things were created by Christ, then those spiritual powers which receive such prominence in that heresy must have been created by Him. The denizens of the upper realms, as well as the inhabitants of the earth, owe their being to His creative power. Invisible forces of the spirit world, as well as the visible and material order, whether invisible or visible, all had as their original creator, Christ, and all have Him as their final disposer. He created all things. He created it all for Himself. He's fully God, and He's preeminent, sovereign over all of His creation. I should be using the word sovereignty, because that's the word the kids are supposed to memorize. Sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty. There's three for you right there, freebie. Okay. That brings us to the little transition statement. Verses 17 in the first part of 18, Paul's gathered everything up. In the entire universe, under the creation lordship of Christ, he wants to address the church and salvation. And so verse 17 and the second half, the first half of 18 uh, reach back to the creation statement, and then they're going to reach ahead to the stanza concerning the, the, the fact that he's Lord of salvation. And the first thing he says in 17a, and he is before all things. Again, a statement of his preexistence. He preexisted all of the creation. Again, one of the heresies that grew up in the early church, that Jesus was a created being. Um, the chief proponent of that was a man named Arius, and uh, considered to be a heretic by the church. The, the contemporary uh, people that propagate that same lie, again, are the Jehovah's Witnesses. But Jesus himself claimed to be pre-existent. At least 30 times in John's Gospel alone, the Lord speaks of being sent by His Father, being sent. Now, sometimes when we're reading the Scripture, we can kind of go over those little statements, you know, and not stop and think of what they say. That is a statement of pre-existence. You and I can't say that. I can't say I was sent by the Father, and neither can you. Because we had a point in time where we came into existence. We have a birth date, we know, and, you know, somewhere around nine months prior to that, we came into existence but he was sent by the father he says over and over and over again and also part of this uh this this statement this transition statement he not only pre-existed all of creation he sustains all of creation i find this absolutely fascinating and it's fun to watch too the scientist All things hold together, he says. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Since physicists, uh, nuclear chemists, and so on, started studying the atom and the structure of the atom, they haven't been able to figure out what holds it together, what bonds it together. They can recognize the bonding. They can talk about all the little parts and pieces, you know, the protons, neutrons, electrons, and all of that. And when they first learned to bombard it and fracture it, the release of tremendous energy, as we know, but they can't figure out what holds it together. And the bigger question, which is really kind of fun to watch, they can't figure out how it got together. They just can't do it. One secular physicist says this, and he's trying to comprehend and explain how, how the atoms came together and how they stay together by natural means. You grasp what this implies. It implies that all the massive nuclei have no right to be alive at all. Indeed, they should never have been created, and if created, they should have blown up instantly. Yet, here they all are. Some inflexible inhibition is holding them relentless together. The nature of the inhibition is also a secret, one thus far reserved by nature for herself. It's a secret that nature is not telling us. (laughs) Problem is, he's looking in the wrong spot. He's looking for a natural scientific explanation, but the explanation is right here. They can't figure out what sustains or holds together the universe. This word whole together is very interesting. It also has the implication of coherence, coherence or making sense. He holds it all together and he makes it make sense and they can't figure it out. They don't have an answer at all. Best they can do is say, well, it it happened way back, billions and billions and billions of years ago. Time is kind of their secret ingredient, you know, you sprinkle enough time on it. Yeah, it it had happened with enough time, right? Maybe a big bang. But they can't tell you what banged. You know, they just chase their tail around the whole thing because Christ is not a part of their explanation. Listen to Christian New Testament commentator Douglas Moo. He gets it. What holds the universe together is not an idea or a virtue, but a person, the resurrected Christ. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. The planets would not stay in their orbits. As is true of every line of this hymn, there is particular application to the Colossian Christians, who were perhaps being tempted to find coherence by pursuing other religious options in their context. In response, Paul wants them to understand that things make sense only when Christ is kept at the center. All things, right? All of creation, of course. But how about all of life, your life and my life? You leave Christ out of your life, your life's not going to make sense. But with Christ, then you can make sense out of all things. So he pre-existed all creation. He sustains all of creation. And see there in your outline, he is the head of the church. Now he's reaching forward into this next stanza. He is the head of the body, the church. The first part of verse 18. Head of the body, the church. This is also part of that transition, and now he's going to focus our attention on Jesus Christ as sovereign sovereignty or sovereign Lord of creation and the fact that he is also Lord of the church. Paul has established beyond any doubt that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things because he made it all. He now moves from the general to the particular And it only makes sense, right? If He's the Creator of all things and if He's Sovereign Lord over all things, the church is in that category. So He's the head of the church. Here again, you can take all categories of systematic theology and plant them firmly on the creation story. If you deny creation in Scripture, as Scripture teaches it, none of the rest of the Bible is going to make any sense to you. You're going to be chasing around all over the place, trying to come up with explanations. None of them will be biblical. Even soteriology, we call it, or the doctrines of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you know this verse. If any man is in Christ, he is a new what? creation. There you go. And that's just one category of theology. Paul uses the same imagery, the imagery, the metaphor of the body to talk about believers being in Christ and how we are part of the body of Christ if we are, if we have come to him through faith in Christ alone. And so he is not only the one who pre-existed all of creation, and he made everything, he is the head of the church, the body of Christ. He says that look at verse twenty four in your in your Bibles. He says, "Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. He sustains all of creation." and he is the Lord over the church. Um, Very fascinating to see how Paul then argues and applies this to the church. Stanza two, he is Lord of salvation. We move into the discussion of the salvation that Christ has provided for the church that he is the head of. And so he says first, he is the beginning of the church. This means that Jesus Christ is the founder, the originator of the church, all those baptized into the body of Christ, both Jew and Gentile, are members of the church, the body of Christ. And without him, there would be no church. And we also know, and Paul says it here in verse eight, verse 18c, he is not only the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, he, he is... Uh, the one who entered into the realm of the dead, and he was the first one to be raised out of the dead. So he's the firstborn of those who are dead, which makes him the preeminent one of the church. Firstborn, it's the exact same word that Paul uses up in the first stanza, prototokos, the preeminent one, the first one. And uh, the purpose of the statement is that he might be preeminent, that he might be preeminent, that he might be the first one. So, he's Lord of salvation because he is the beginning of the church. He's also the preeminent one, as he has said before. And again, he's going to make reference to the deity of Christ. He is the fullness of God in verse 19. And again, it's a statement of cause. Because in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell Paul, again, he may be referencing the false teachers and the false uh, system that was plaguing the Colossian church because some of them were trying to say, well, you, and remember, they were Gentile Christians. That little area there in uh, the, the Lycus Valley of what is now Western Turkey, there were three, those three churches Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae. They were Gentile churches. The Judaizers would often come in and say, well, sure, you Gentiles can be saved, you can be justified as long as you add the Mosaic law and the right of circumcision. And Paul, you know, I mean, he just would go nuts with that because Paul taught no, justification, salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, right? And so this may be Paul co-opting some of their language. You're not quite full. You're not quite complete. And Paul argues it this way. He says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you're in Christ and He's the fullness of God, then in your faith is in Him alone. You have everything necessary for salvation. There is nothing to add. And He is the fullness. So He's probably using their language. Down in verse... uh, Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. And again, He's applying this truth to the Colossian Christians. We can take it to heart as well. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy... An empty deceit. If you're chasing after philosophy and you're a Christian, you're being taken captive, okay? Simple as that. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why, Paul? Verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's a statement of the deity of Christ and also His uh, humanity. He's fully God and fully man. He's not a good 50-50 blend of each one. No, He's fully God and fully man. And so, He is the fullness of God. And if you're in Christ, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have all that you need for salvation. He's Lord of salvation because He's fully God. And because He is fully God, He was able to accomplish that great work on the cross. And He became, and this is D, the reconciler of all things. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He's not only the creator of all things, and he will reconcile all things to God. The implication of the verse is at some point after creation, of course, there was some kind of a tragic fall, and that's we know that's exactly what happened. Creation fell, but Jesus Christ is coming back, and his blood on the cross is going to reconcile all who believe in him to God. His plan of redemption is going to reverse the curse. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and one day all who believe in Him will be resurrected, will follow Him in His resurrection. Remember, you were not only baptized into His death, you were baptized into His death, burial, and what? His resurrection. Absolute full identity with Him. If you're a Christian today, you can trust that one day, when this life is over, you will be in His presence. And that's exactly what Paul says making peace by the blood of his cross. And then he applies this down in verse 21. He says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Why, Paul? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You can count on that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You will stand before Him holy, blameless, and above reproach. If you die in your sins, having never trusted Christ, you will stand before Him as well. But instead of standing before Him, having Him as your Savior, He will be your judge. Everybody will be raised from the dead. Read Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 and following. The sea will give up its dead. And those people will stand before him as well. But their eternal destiny will not be with Christ in heaven. Their eternal destiny out in front of them is a lake of fire. I would encourage you, I would urge you, if you've never trusted in Christ, understand what Paul is saying here. Put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you can trust him for your eternal salvation. He is the Lord of creation, and he's also the Lord of salvation. I want to look at just one verse real quick. Revelation chapter 4. Turn to Revelation chapter 4, if you would. Just want to look at one short passage. Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to show you who the Antichrist is. Not really. I just want you to hurry up and turn there. <laughs> Almost got you. Revelation chapter 4. Remember, cover to cover in the Bible, creation is the foundation for all of their doctrines in the scriptures, Right. Revelation chapter 4, John is given this vision into the throne room of God, and he has a vision where he sees these living creatures, but also he sees redeemed people who are there, 24 elders. And in verse 9 of Revelation 4, it says, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever... The 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. Okay, Now, this is in heaven. These people are redeemed, and they're worshiping God. This, we could consider this perfect worship, could we not? Look what they say. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. All of creation declares the glory of God because He created it all. So He's Lord of creation. He's also Lord of salvation. This week, Jim and some of the folks have been down at the Shepherds Conference, and uh, I'm sure they had a great time. Uh, I had the privilege of attending there in 2017, and the theme of the conference that year was We preach Christ. I have uh, reproduced Pastor MacArthur's Christology statement there for you on the back of your outline. I hope you take some time to look that over. That is probably the finest statement of Christology that I've ever seen for a couple of reasons. One, it's very concise. That's hard to find in theological circles. But it's also very comprehensive. And uh, it it almost reads like a tract you could hand out a comprehensive statement of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I hope you are trusting Him today. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.